You are listening to the Sungrove podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. All right, good morning. We are going to start a series today called Seven Questions That God Uses to Refine You. So over the next five weeks, you say, Dave, wait, seven questions, five weeks. That's right. We're going to double up on a couple of them because that's exactly what God does in the book of Malachi. It's in the Old Testament. If you have your Bible, open to Malachi chapter 1. And as you're beginning to look there, I want to just let you know a couple things. We just got back from two weeks of vacation. We really needed it. It was awesome to be away. I heard just amazing things were happening back here. By the way, I just want to give props out to Ryan Yee. Will you give it up for Ryan? He's here in the service. Um, great job sharing about the life of Joseph. Also, Mike Millette, who last week talked about community groups and the response, by the way, was just absolutely overwhelming. And, and that's one of the things we love. In fact, I, I got to let you know something. Uh, this may not totally affect you because you're here at 9 a.m. But we, as, a, as an elder board, we've decided we're going to stop doing our 6 p.m. service because we want to kind of do the things and maximize the things that we can uh, and that are already moving. And one of the reasons we're going to do that is we would much rather have our volunteers, our leaders, uh, our staff, uh, all of us as people be able to focus in on meeting during the week, meeting in community groups. And that's one of the great ways to do that. So actually tonight at our live will be our last 6 p.m. service. Next Sunday, of course, is Father's Day. We'll celebrate the fathers. Uh, it will be called officially here at Sun Grove Church next week, Bacon Sunday. So I uh, just want to let you know, let the word out. It's going to be awesome. You will not want to miss it next week, but it's going to be awesome. And, and one of the things that we did on vacation, which was just great for us, again, props to those guys for sharing and bringing God's word and just what God wanted to do in your heart. Uh, I love it. I talked to a, a person in our church who just said, you know, we've come for some time. And finally, the person that she's been coming to church with accepted Christ after being here over a year, but it was last week of all times uh, during a community group type sermon, an activation type sermon. That was the time a person said yes to Jesus and how exciting uh, that is. Isn't that great news? I um, want to let you know uh, just something that's interesting. We went along all the beaches. You say, where'd you go on vacation? We went all the way up the coast. And when I mean all the way up, we went pretty much all the way up uh, to Canada. We actually went to Vancouver, drove the whole way up the coast, about a week on the way up there, and then a week we kind of came inland and came down through Seattle and Portland and Crater Lake and Klamath Falls and back through Redding to Sacramento, and it was just a great family vacation, good times, but one of the beaches that we stopped at on the way up, we're just out there, and you know how like, you're going along the beach and you're looking for shells or you're just enjoying the, the beauty? Uh, when we're at this beach, we saw this seal pup, and I want to show you a picture here uh, up on the screen here behind me. That We saw this little seal, isn't that cute? <laughs> Things adorable, right? But it was all by itself, and it looked absolutely exhausted. And you know what happens, like, uh, as you're walking up the beach and there's a little seal pup, people will stop by and look at it. They don't get too close, but they're looking at it, and then they start talking to each other. And the questions start coming up, right? Well, where's the mom? The questions start coming up. Well, well, should we call? Should we call the park service? Should we call like you know someone who will come and check on it, make sure it's not malnourished? And then another person will come up and they know more about things like seals. And they're like, listen, the seal moms leave the pup on the beach while they go hunt. And then as we're kind of going out from the beach, we see a carcass of a seal, a big seal, you know, going up and down on on the beach and kind of the inlet there. And we're like, uh oh, I hope that wasn't the mom, right? And so you're wondering, but what happens is you see something like that. It's adorable. But questions start coming up. 
questions start coming up and people will talk like, well, I already called. I'm going to get someone to come down here and check it. And then other people are like, well, maybe we should get a blanket. You're like, no, no, leave it alone. It'll run back in the water, right? Like just, just let it be, let nature take its course. But on the inside, whenever we see an issue like that, a care or a need, we start to have questions. And one of the things I realized is that behind every question is the issue of trust. Behind every question is the issue of trust. Do I trust that the seal pup will be okay on its own? Like three days ago, you didn't care about the seal pup, but now that you've walked down the beach and you've seen the seal pup, it is become, you know, incumbent upon you to do something to help the seal pup, right? But every other day you're at work and every other day that maybe a seal pup is on the beach, you don't really care, you, you can care less. But when you're in that situation, that moment, you begin to have questions and maybe in your life and maybe in my life, there are bigger questions than just, is the mom out feeding and leaving the seal pup? Will she come back and get it? Will it be okay? Will it make it in nature? There are bigger questions in our world. There are bigger questions in our lives. And behind every question is the issue of trust. And what I want you to do is a gut check today. I want you to ask deep down in your heart, do I trust God? And I want you to elaborate on that a little bit. Do I trust God? Do I trust him with my talents, my abilities? Do I trust God with those? Do I trust God with my talk? Does my talk reveal that I I actually trust God in my life? Do I trust God with my treasure? my resources, my money? Do I trust God with my testimony, the story of what he's doing in my life, what he's done in my life in the past, and that there's hope for what he's doing in my life for the future, and there's a hope that lasts forever? Do I trust God with my story, or do I keep my story all to myself? Do I trust God with my testimony? Behind every question is the issue of trust, a number of years ago, I was working in a different church, and a couple came in to see me, and they were struggling through some issues. Uh, the guy was uh, addicted to heroin. He was addicted uh, to a couple other things. He was depressed. He was struggling. And in the course of one of our meetings, we, we began to talk about how God pursues us, even in our worst, our darkest moments, our addicted, awful, horrible, hate ourselves moments, that God pursues us with his love. And, and as he's in that moment, he, he begins to go, well, I just don't know. I don't know. I mean, and he begins to ask a question, and, and his, his wife is sitting there, and he begins to ask a question. He says this, you know, well, well, is it wrong to commit suicide? I said, that's the wrong question. Right? Because you're beginning to believe that that might be an out. And then he says, well, let me say, if a person commits suicide, do they go to hell? Again, it's the wrong question. Because behind that question is the issue of trust, right? Does he trust that God can handle this situation? Does he trust that God has reached to him? Does he trust that there could be hope? Does he trust that, there is, that God has actually loved him even though he has struggled? And, and some of those struggles are self-inflicted in you or in me or in him. In other ones, they are, but God still pursues us even when we've run away into those intense kind of problems. We begin to say, is there really hope? How has God loved me? Well, I begin to ask him, how has God loved you? He says, you know, four years ago, I was in a darkened house, worst time of my life. It was near the holidays. He said, I actually had a gun in my mouth and I uh, was debating whether or not to end my life. I said, well, what happened? 
So right about the time I was at my weakest moment, I just said, God, if, if you're real, if you're there, you just got to do something to let me know that you're there. And he goes, then there was this big knock on my door. And it was a friend who just was coming by, dropped by randomly to check on him. And right then we said, listen, I want you to mark that for a moment because that was God intervening in your life. And, and as we're talking, we begin to, you know, it, it's, it's weird as a pastor sometimes because I'm not a trained counselor. I can give pastoral counsel and I can be a bridge to help people get the ongoing long-term counseling that they need. And that was certainly the case in this situation. But there are these moments, these moments that in uh, and they don't happen all the time as a pastor, but there are these moments where you just know beyond a shadow of doubt that you know that God is saying, Dave, right now, this is my Holy Spirit telling you, you've got to ask this question. And as I'm sitting there and he's talking about these things, this question comes to my mind. I think, I can't, I can't ask that. Like, that's just weird, right? And, but just God's spirit is relentless. He's just on me. He's like, you need to ask him this question right now. So I say, okay, listen, listen. I just interrupted him. I said, I need to ask. I'm just feeling like I'm prompted to ask this question. He goes, what? Is there a specific bullet that you would use if you ever came to the point where you were going to check out? And he shoves his chair back against the wall and he gets all shocked. And he's like, why would you ask me that question? Now I'm thinking, that, okay, this is going bad, right? You know? <laughs> Uh, I don't know. I was prompted. I mean, his wife's looking at him and looking at me like, what is this, right? You know, and, and, and I'm going, I'm, I, I just felt prompted by God. This is my only excuse. I just felt prompted by God that I need to ask you that question. And he's just like, he's like the color went out of his face and everything. And he stands up and he reaches in his pocket and he pulls out this bullet and he puts it down on the desk. That's a 45 hollow point. It's what's known as a cop killer. Because when it hits, it just spreads out and ends things quickly. It's not just a weak person's bullet, is it? And his wife begins to cry. And she's like, what is that? And, and he goes, I carry that with me every day of my life for the last like eight years. And she's like, what? I do your laundry. I've never seen that. And he goes, I know. I take it out every time but I carry that with me every single day. And he goes, how could you know that? How could you know that? And I said, I didn't. I just felt prompted by God. I said, this right now, this right now in the office is an example that God loves you, that he's pursuing you. And I said, would you trust God with that bullet? Will you give it up? You're not giving it to me, but would you give that to the Lord and not replace it? And he just broke down crying. I said, yeah. I'll give up my bullet. You know what this bullet represents? This bullet represents his mistrust of God's love. You and I have a bullet. You and I carry it around. And on the outside, we might say, no, no, of course I trust God because I'm supposed to trust God. But on the inside, God wants to challenge you and he, he wants to challenge me because we say, can I trust you, God? Can I trust you if I'm experiencing something like depression? Can I trust you when I have doubts? God, can I trust you with my addictions? Can I trust you, God, with my singleness? Or will I be single forever, right? 
And then we begin to say, well, God, I'm going to start to have to date like the world, and I'm going to have to do this. And some of you are like, oh, I'm beyond the dating age, and that's great. But do you trust God with your retirement years? Do you trust God with your health? Do you trust God when you're experiencing that conflict in your marriage? Do you trust God in your future when life disappoints you? Do you trust God with your past? Do you trust God with your abilities that you have right now? And do you trust God with the future? Or are you living like the world, trying to contain it and build in the bullet of mistrust and securities that really just ultimately might not last? Behind every question is the issue of trust. The nation of Israel was asking these same questions. In fact, in the day of Nehemiah and Ezra and now Malachi, they're all contemporaries, uh, the nation of Israel, which was God's chosen people, they were asking very similar questions. They, they had some mistrust in their society. It might sound very familiar. They mistrusted three main things and one fourth thing, but the first thing that they didn't trust is they didn't trust organized religion. They didn't trust the leaders because many of the leaders in organized religion were corrupt. They just didn't trust leadership. They didn't trust their, in their day and age, oftentimes the leadership was so attached to politics because the religious power was also the power. And doesn't it sound like our land? We just don't trust our leaders. Second thing, the people didn't trust the institution of marriage and they were cutting quarters and they were keeping, uh, they were redefining marriage in their culture. God said for the Jewish people, you're to marry only Jewish people. You're not to marry outside the nation of Israel, which I've called you to be. He was very clear in the Old Testament about that for that nation, for that time. And yet they said, you know what? The grass looks greener. Other nations, other foreign women, other foreign men, they begin to say, maybe we don't need to define marriage like God defines marriage. And they were redefining it and compromising it. Third thing, people didn't trust God with their money. So they were cutting corners and they were keeping the tithe. They're saying, God, we expect you to bless us. We are the people of God, but we're, we're going to go ahead and keep the tithe. We're, we're going to go ahead and just really in our heart, we don't trust you with our money. We don't trust you with our security. We don't trust you with our abilities. And last, they had a low regard for God. Whenever you and I have mistrust, we have a low regard for those that we're entrusted to trust, don't we? You might say, God, I trust you. But as you look at, began to look at your life and the way that you're living your life, I believe that God wants to challenge you and he wants to challenge me and he wants to challenge Sun Grove as a church. He wants to challenge all of us over the next five weeks. God wants to use seven questions that he will use to refine you. But here's the interesting thing about the seven questions that he asked. In the book of Malachi, the seven questions that God asks are questions that the people are actually asking God. So here we are as people and we say, God, how have you loved us as an example? And then he would begin to say, you said, here's a question you ask all the time. You ask God, how have I loved you? And then he comes up with the answer. But God's going to, over the course of the book of Malachi, use seven questions to refine you and to refine me. And I believe me, I think that God wants to challenge our church. We've talked about identity and formation and community and mission. But to get on mission, to stay on mission, God's got to do some challenging in us. And there's two things that he wants to do. Number one, like the nation of Israel, God wants to assure you of his love. Identity, right? You are my son, my daughter of the Most High God, whom I love, 
with whom I am well pleased. He wants to assure you of his love, but at the same time, that's one end. On the same time, he wants to address our disobedience. God wants to challenge you in your lifestyle over the next five weeks. I believe that the church needs the same assurance of God's love and the same challenge. I believe that we are the most addicted generation, the most medicated generation, the most self-serving generation. I believe that we're the most entitled generation and we're quickly becoming the unhappiest generation. So I believe your life needs to be challenged. And my heart is just as God would speak to us, that we would begin to evaluate our lives and be challenged, one, to embrace his love. And second, that our disobedience be challenged. That it doesn't just remain unchallenged, doesn't, doesn't go unchallenged in our lives, but God wants to do both. He wants to say, I love you, and I love you too much to leave you where you are. I want to challenge the disobedience. God will challenge you to trust him and follow him more closely over the next five weeks. If you'll be here every week, God will challenge you over the next five weeks to follow him more closely, potentially, than you ever have. God will deal with the issue of trust in your heart for him over the next five weeks, perhaps more closely and intimately than you've ever been challenged before. I believe that God will challenge you to trust the institution of marriage that he has set up and stop compromising it or stop finding uh, loopholes in it or stop trying to get out of it. He wants you to commit to marriage and or commit to abstinence depending on your life situation. God will challenge you to trust him with money and stop cutting corners or stop keeping the tithe over the next five weeks. God will refine your regard for him as king of kings, as lord of lords, and his place in your life over the next five weeks. We're going to look at seven questions God uses to refine you and me. So if you have your Bible, open with me to Malachi chapter 1, with, beginning with verse 1. It says this, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Let me just tell you real quick, the word Malachi means my messenger. In the Old Testament, they have the law, but God would send to his people, his church, if you will, in the Old Testament, he would send to his people messengers, prophets that would speak on behalf of God. They are trusted, they are tested, and this is truly the word of God through the prophet Malachi. In the New Testament, he's given us the New Testament. He's given us the Bible. We have way more than they had in the Old Testament, but back then, he gave them prophets. And so, actually, Malachi, some scholars debate, was Malachi actually a real person, or was he just a person, and allegorically, is called the, my messenger. But I believe he was a real prophet, a contemporary of Ezra and Nehemiah, and at this time in the life of the history of Israel, God has sent Malachi to challenge the people and to assure them of God's love. The word of the Lord to Israel through my messenger, Quote, I have loved you, says the Lord. Let me translate that for you for a minute because if you don't know the language, you think, well, it's just great. It's great that he's loved us maybe in the past, but that's not what it's talking about. Translated, it really would say this. I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. Heather and I celebrated 22 years yesterday as our anniversary, and, and it's not good enough just to say, oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's awesome. So it's not good enough just to, just to say, hey, on my, our wedding day, I said, I love you. 
or when, you know, we were dating and we got a couple months in and we finally said, I love you. You know, it's not good enough. No, when, when you celebrate an anniversary, you're reminding yourself that, that I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. If those break down, right, then trust gets shaken, doesn't it? If we do things to break down that trust over time, then that trust gets shaken. We need to rebuild that. But God is coming to Israel and saying, listen, listen, I have loved you. I have, I do, I will. But he says, you ask. Now, here's the question that he introduces. How have you loved us? So God establishes first, listen, I've loved you. I do, I will, I have. But the people are still asking, how? Life is hard. We don't see it. How have you loved us? Have you ever asked that question? Maybe you haven't asked that question out loud. Because let me tell you, when you and I on the inside begin to ask God, how have you loved us? That's the kind of question that we harbor on the inside, that we rarely speak out loud. And it asks, God, if you really loved me, why are things the way they are? And you might look around at your life circumstances, you might look around at our world and say, God, if you really loved us, why is the world the way it is? The answer to that is because it's under the control of the evil one. God has all authority in heaven and earth and under the earth, but for a season, for a time, the authority of the world is under the control of the devil. And you and I see it. We see it in the wickedness. We see it in the violence. We see it in the shootings, just crazy stuff that is going on right now in America, right now in our world across the world. Why is there evil in the world? Because it's under the control of the evil one. But God has come to redeem the world. It doesn't stay there forever. But sometimes you and I on the inside, when hard things happen in our lives, when hard things happen in the world, we begin to go, well, I'm supposed to know that you love me, God, but really in my heart I'm saying, how have you loved me? And that's what the people of Israel were asking right there. So God answers them. And this is tricky, so stay with me here a little bit as we walk through this. He says this, was not Esau Jacob's brother? Now, these two guys are twins. They were born, but... Esau was born first, so he's the firstborn. He gets the birthright. He comes out first. He gets a double portion of the inheritance. He gets the blessing of the father first because he's the firstborn. But these two guys are twins. Jacob comes out, and Jacob means liar. That's what his name means. How'd you like to name your kid? You're in the hospital. Oh, great. What are you going to name this one? Liar. <laughs> means deceiver. It means tricker. That was, that was Jacob's thing. And Jacob, over the course of his life, he pulled a trick and he stole the birthright that belonged to his brother. The younger one stole the blessing from the older one. And then God chose Jacob to allow his family line to ultimately lead to Jesus, who then blesses the entire human race. So the blessing of God to the world through Jesus came through Jacob, the deceiver, not Esau. But God says it in an interesting way. Let's look at this. Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Every Israeli would say, yes, absolutely, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland, left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say, now the Edomites are the descendants of Esau. 
The country of Edom, the Edomites may say, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Well, I got to ask the question, how could God hate Esau? That's weird. I need to let you know that God didn't hate Esau in the sense of like, I don't like him or I'm just simply going to curse him. God brought a curse to all that land because of the sin. And so both Esau, the Edomites, and the Israelites, both of them, those who were the line of Jacob, both those who were the line of Esau, both of them were conquered by the Babylonians. And the land was turned into a wasteland. But at this point in history... Nehemiah, Ezra have led people back into the land. They are rebuilding Israel. Israel's being restored. They've been freed in many ways from the Babylonians to go back and to rebuild. Their land is getting blessed. They are receiving the, the fact that they were actually restored by God. But in their mind, any Israeli could look and say, but just beyond our borders, the Edomites have not been restored. They were conquered by the Babylonians too. They've not been restored. Their land is still a wasteland. Their land is still desolate. In fact, let me ask you, have you ever heard of the Edomite people? Have you ever heard of the Israeli people? Of course, why? Because they've been restored, but God's blessing came through the Israelites, not the Edomites. The Edomites as a people no longer really exist. God's not saying I hate him and I love the other, it really means this, that God chose the unlikely, Jacob, over Esau. Esau remained, in a sense, unchosen for the blessing of Jesus to come through the family line. Jacob remained chosen. In fact, if you look at scripture in Genesis, Esau was, in fact, a very blessed man. You look at his wealth, you look at his life, you look at his integrity. He was a man's man, he was a blessed man. And Jacob and Esau ultimately had to make this thing right where Jacob had deceived Esau, he ultimately had to make it right. And he shared relationship again with his brother even though he had deceived him and stolen from him. But here's my point. Some of you in the room, you can say, well, how could God do that? How could God, in a sense, hate Esau a woman once said to Charles Spurgeon, I cannot understand why God should say that he hated Esau. That, Spurgeon replied, is not my difficulty. My trouble is to understand how God could love Jacob. <laughs> See, for some of us in this room, the mistrust, the question behind the question is not how could God unchoose somebody else? but really, how, how could God choose me? How could God choose you? The most unlikely in your family, the most unlikely among your friends, the most unlikely because of your sin. How is it that God could choose you to be part of his forever family? It's not that he unchose a bunch of others, but rather that he chose you. Israel was asking God and needed to find assurance of his choosing and his acceptance and his love. But God points to them and says, you've asked, how have I loved you? And God is saying, just right now, take a contemporary look 
outside the, the borders of your land, and you realize that here we have Esau, here we have Jacob, and I have restored Jacob, but Esau is left unrestored at this point. I've loved you. He gives them concrete evidence of his love. God loves you, and he loves you too much to leave you where you are. In the New Testament, Jesus has a lot of friends that he loves, lots of friends. Among them are Mary and Martha and Lazarus. Well, Lazarus gets sick, and Lazarus dies. And you got to realize something. Lazarus gets sick, and, and he's not doing well. And Mary and Martha send out word because Jesus is the healer. He's going around and healing all sorts of people. Remember the woman who snuck up behind him, touched the hem of his robe, and she was healed of her bleeding instantly. Jesus is the healer. It's not a problem for him. But Lazarus falls sick, and Jesus delays, and Lazarus dies. Jesus shows up four days later and the, the women are crying saying, if only you had been here, then he would be healed. Well, Jesus goes, asks him to roll back the stone from the grave and four days later he ra raises Lazarus from the dead. Okay, that's a big deal. Jesus then goes on about his ministry. He's doing more ministry. Now he's coming back through the area in which the three of them live and they want to host Jesus. In fact, they want to th throw, in a sense, a thank you party. Thank you, God, for raising our brother from the dead. You're coming back through. Don't stay at anybody else's house. Stay at ours. If you have your Bible, open with me to Luke chapter 10. Beginning with verse 38, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. And she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work all by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken away from her. I mean, you picture Martha for a minute. We, Jesus, we want to throw you the ultimate party, the ultimate thank you. Thank you so much for rescuing our brother. Thank you so much for doing that. We, we want to show our love. And some of you in this room, you've got that gift of hospitality. A person cannot come to your house without leaving with food. A person cannot come to your house without you just setting it up and, and just saying, we have prepared the place for you to be here. And Jesus shows up. And in this time, when she's working feverishly to cater the party, Mary, her sister, is just sitting at Jesus' feet listening. And you got to realize something. Jesus is speaking in the fact that Luke, who was a Gentile and a doctor who investigates everything he's heard about the claims of Christ, he says very specifically where, Mar where Mary sits. That, that she is at his feet listening to him. Because to an Israeli audience, that would be a scandalous message. That a woman, instead of helping and preparing in that day and age, that a woman was in the place of a legitimate disciple sitting at the feet of the rabbi. That would never happen in that culture in that day. That kind of education, that kind of trust, that kind of relationship with the master would never happen. And yet, here in this moment... Luke is affirming for us that Jesus was wiping away class, position, gender, and validating Mary as a student. But Jesus says something interesting to her. Listen, you're, you're busy doing a whole bunch of things that no one's asked you to do. 
Sometimes the question behind the question is that we say, God, do I trust you? And if I don't trust you, then I try to over-control my children. I try to over-control my spouse. I try to over-control my job. I try to over-control my life. I try to over-control my security. I try to over-control my future. And when I say, God, I'm not sure that I ultimately trust you, then we try to control all the things because everything else feels out of control. And that's what Mary was doing. But look at her question. Her question's not, God, I need some help. Could you dismiss a couple people to help me? She says, don't you care that my sister is neglecting, in a sense, what I think she should be doing? And God goes, she's doing exactly what she should be doing. Some of you are running around, you're frantic. You're trying to keep up with the pace of this world. You're trying to keep up with the expectations of this world. You're trying to keep up with a child-centered world. You're trying to keep up with all the things that tell you that you should love and you should be passionate about and you should have security for. And God is hungry to be with you. And your soul is actually hungry to be with him. But things don't go your way or my way. And then we say, God, don't you care? What are we really saying? What's the question behind the question? How have you loved us? And God says, listen, Mary has chosen what's better. She's with me. She's spending time with me. That actually, Martha, for you, it would be better if you were with me and spending time with me. These other things are so temporary, but you've made them eternal in the sense of importance. And yet you're neglecting where you really should be. And some of us in this room, you're neglecting where you really should be. Because maybe on the inside, you're saying, God, I, I, in my head, I trust you, but my heart would rather control. The disciples were on a boat. Out on the boat, Jesus is sleeping in the storm. A storm breaks out. As a storm happens, these are fishermen. These guys are professional like boat rowers and, and navigators. And, and this thing gets crazy, crazy, crazy out on the lake. And Jesus is asleep. He's exhausted from a lot of ministry. He's in the stern sleeping. And they wake him up. And Mark, if you, if you look, the story happens in Mark chapter 4. But if you look at it, they wake Jesus up. They wake him up and they basically just say, God, don't you care if we drowned? Like, we need help bailing, we need help whatever, right? Don't you care if we drown? And, and Jesus gets up, and, and he shouts out to the wind and the waves. He doesn't shout at the disciples. Like, hey, you guys are panicking. Calm down. He turns to the wind and waves and says, quiet. Be still. And the wind and the waves calm down. But then God comes back and asks them a question, because behind their question, God, don't you care if we drowned? is the issue of trust. So God comes back and says this, why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? Behind every question is the issue of trust. See, we cry out to God, God, don't you care that my life is the way it is? God, don't you care what's going on with me right now? Don't you care what's happening with my children? God, don't you care that I'm single and I don't see any prospects on the horizon? God, don't you care that I've trap myself in a bunch of sin. God, don't you care that my life is falling apart? God, don't you care that I seem really self-secure and that I've forgotten you for quite a while and I haven't been with you for quite a while? Don't you care? God, don't you care that there's a homeless person walking by outside and she probably has some needs? 
I don't know, maybe there's somebody here in the, in the church right now who just wants to, one of our greeters or somebody wants to go just check in with that lady. Walking around carrying a sleeping bag, just walking by the windows, no idea that Jesus loves her. Don't you care? God cares that you and I grow to trust him in the storms and in the impossible situations in our lives. It's his ways. Uh, you got to realize again that his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, but we make our thoughts the way they are. And we make our ways the way that we are. And the people of God have been partially restored in, in Nehemiah and Ezra and Malachi's day. They begin to see part of the, the church being built, the city of Jerusalem, the walls being rebuilt, the kingdom of Israel being restored. But in the middle of experiencing some of that blessing, they had run away from God. God, we partially have experienced your blessing, but now we've distanced ourselves. And the question we're asking you is, don't you care? The question we're asking you is, how have you loved us? And for those of us in the New Testament, we realize God would just say, look at my hands. Look at my side. Look at my feet. That I've cared for you not only in this life, but in life ever after. That sometimes the ultimate healing is that you will not be in a body with cancer forever. But you will be for a while. That you will not be feeling disjointed with another person in relationship forever but you might be for a little while. That you will not be condemned by your sin. That you will not get what you actually deserve. But because you put your faith, your trust in me, you're reminded again, here's how I've loved you. I've been loving you all along. And when life seems out of control, when our world is going crazy, when there is extreme violence that happens, when we look and say, how did this happen? What's going on? When we can't trust our leaders, when we see our whole culture redefining marriage and you're tempted to go one way or another on that, and, and we look at all that, we say, God, have you loved us? And God is saying, I love you. Let me show you. I've stretched my arms out. I've caused things to last forever, and I want you to trust to do life my way because I loved you this much. Do you trust me? See, God is asking for you today to give him the bullet of mistrust. Because some of you, you're carrying it around in your pocket. You're saying, God, on the outside, I go to church, I do this, but on the inside, if we're just being honest with each other, I, I'm not sure I trust you, God. And today he's saying, will you give me the bullet? Will you reach in? Will you grab that thing? Will you give it up? With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just thinking about your own life. Maybe today God has just put something on your heart where you realize, God, with my lips I might say that I trust you or that I'm your family, I'm your child, uh, that you, you love me. But on the inside, I'm just, I haven't been trusting you. And God wants to address not only the issue of love, but he also wants to address the issue of our disobedience. And when you and I choose not to trust God, it's disobedient. Absolutely it is. And so today we just acknowledge, God, we come before you that if we confess our sin, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
And if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you've already said yes to him with your life, which means you've given him the trust of your life. Maybe today you confess to him your mistrust and you offer that up. It, it might be just like you're giving an offering today. God, I'm giving you the offering of mistrust because I've been holding on too much. For some of you in this room, you're just realizing today for the first time that Jesus loved you enough to die for you. That he took all the wrath of God against your sin and he, he bore it himself on the cross. And that today you're saying, Jesus, I need you. I don't know how to fix my life. I don't know how to receive forgiveness. But today, God, I'm going to ask you to choose me. God, don't hate me. Don't unchoose me. But God, today, would you choose me? And if today you're feeling like you want to give your life to Jesus, you just do that by offering your life to him verbally. And so right where you're seated, if you just pray a prayer like this after me, just pray this, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my heart, make me a new creation. Forgive me of all my sin. I believe that you have loved me by dying on the cross, being buried in the grave, and rising to new life because you're God. So today, Jesus, I give you me. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.